stay connected. Sign up for our newsletter. Go beyond your favorite Voice America shows. Visit iradioblog.com. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Well, today we're going to be going behind bars. We're going to be looking at life behind bars, not ready for prime time. And my two guests have incredibly interesting stories where they're going to be telling you the real story about what goes on behind bars, not the stereotypical stories that you may see on TV or even in movies. Um, there's a lot. There's a lot that uh, we really don't get to to see and to understand. You know, even that when we get glimpses, it's not really going in depth uh, as to what is actually happening. My guests are Tim Traviola. He was incarcerated for 22 years. He's chronicled his story in prison to publish his new book, and he's taking us behind the bars. And, uh, and you know, obviously in 22 years, he's got a lot of true stories to tell. Denise Wilkins is the mother of Justin L. Davis. Justin was murdered in the forensic unit of a state mental hospital. She will be talking about how rap music and other negative influences put him there. They're both going to be talking about what um, the the real the real story. This is uh, this may, if this is if you have um, delicate ears or uh, you don't want to hear the real dope, then then you should you should untune, <laughs> unclick. <laughs> both of these guests now have devoted themselves because of what they've seen. They've devoted themselves to fixing this the system. Uh, Tim is a presenter to new parolees. And Denise um, runs the Justin L. Davis Foundation to help people. Both of them are helping people who are struggling with crime, addiction, and other problems. So um, I was sort of only kidding when I said if this is too delicate for your ears to click off because I don't want you to click off because this is too good to not hear. So why don't we start with you, Denise. Um, Tell us your story about the tragedy that befell your son and how it all started. Okay. Uh, first of all, Carol, if I could just thank you for having me on the show. Um, you know, my son's story is a very uh, delicate story. It's, a, it's such a tragic experience that I lived um, with him. Um, it started when he was um, five years old, just to get right to the point. started at five years old. Um, I took him to a doctor's office where uh, there was a situation where he had to use the bathroom. He goes into the bathroom. Um, I get the, the nurse comes out in a rush. She, she calls me to come back, and I find out when I get there that a huge cabinet that was on the wall falls off the wall and hits my son in the head. 
Well, the, of course, there was a huge bump that came out, and the doctor told me, well, because the bump came out of his head and did not go into the brain, that it would be nothing more than just a, a headache. And I accepted that. Um, I trusted my doctor. And, um, and so, you know, he just told me, just keep an eye on him. He'll be fine. So we did go to the doctor. They did, I mean, to the hospital. They did do some tests, and they told me everything was fine. So I came on home with him. He seemed to be fine. But at the age of 13, things changed. When he was in, uh, transferred from the fifth to the sixth, you know, you have to, the, the sequencing that has to take place when they change classrooms began to, um, it, it, it was different for him. Uh-huh. He, was having a, he was having a hard time trans, uh, doing that transfer. So pretty much he um, had a hard time uh, with the cognitive um, understanding, and he had a hard time sequencing things. And so he began to complain to me about it, and I went to the school, did my, my part as a parent to try to get some dialogue as to what could be the problem, and pretty much what I was receiving from the school system, that Justin was, was fine, Justin was very intelligent, and that Justin was just, now he's just being a class clown. Uh, they didn't know my son's personality. Um, he was a shy young man. He was a funny uh, comedian. I call him my little quiet comedian because he didn't like drawing attention to himself, but at the same time, he liked to make you laugh. And uh-huh. so, but he used it, out of being embarrassed in the school system with this problem that he began to have, um, he just, you could say that it turned into him um, acting like a class clown, I guess, to draw the attention away from him and or, you know, however kids think, you know. And so anyway, the school misunderstood it, and I misunderstood it because I didn't think head injury at that time to be able to alert the school because the doctor didn't alert me. I didn't think that there would be a problem with the head injury being the Uh issue. Moving right along, um, Justin began to... Uh, do drugs. Well, actually what happened, we live in Alexandria, Virginia, which is a zero-tolerance rule state, and um, they really didn't have any tolerance for my son's class clown actions. Mm-hmm. And no matter what I did to um, advocate, because I figured if it was a cognitive issue that maybe he was having a learning problem, and mm-hmm. so I tried to initiate that, but they they just really wouldn't accept it at that time. And what they ended up doing was putting him into what they call an alternative program. Well, Justin was raised in a very narrow environment. He was raised in a home. I'm, I'm a minister. Um, I had values and we had boundaries, and they just were not, my children were not exposed to a lot of the negatives of the, the environment. But here he was being thrown into an environment where it was, it was separated from the rest of the school children, and he was put in a classroom with 12 little boys who were, most of them were on their way to, I mean, I, I don't even know all of them, but the ones I did get to meet, they were already on their way to illegal behavior. And so it became very difficult for me to be able to keep him separated from, you know, all of that, those, those guys. Well, he got in there, and I guess he began to swim with them, and uh, at 13, he started doing marijuana. By 14, he was um, experimenting with PCP. Hmm. Um, the PCP thing, I just want to move it along a little faster. We got down to him. Uh, when he became uh, 21, um, hit that PCP um, high, got worse and worse. Uh, by 21, he began, um, I noticed that he began to uh, hallucinate. Uh, something had actually gone on in our in our neighborhood um, that 
he didn't understand being on the drug, and it really spiraled him out of control. He just was out of control. Uh, where we would not have been able to have told, uh, been, been able to tell that he was having a problem up until that age, um, he started becoming more visibly. It became more visibly noticeable that he was having a problem. Uh huh. And so. Um, the TCP took its toll. He began hallucinating, and I felt as though I needed to get help. So I began to, he, in fact, he came to me one day, and he looked me in my eyes and said, Ma, I need help. And mm-hmm. I had been unemployed since 2007 because of a spinal issue. And um, that spinal issue, of course, I, I was unable to work. I, I had a very limited income. And so I began to search the Internet trying to find foundations or organizations or somebody who could help me with the enormous cost that it, it would cost me to put him in a private rehabilitation center. Hmm. And I could find nothing. So um, as he began to progressively get worse, I decided that I needed to get him some help, so I called the police department and I said, "Please help me, because I don't." My son had uh, he had gotten in some troubles um, in, uh, throughout the time with the law, but no, he had no felony. You know what I'm saying? And I didn't want him to get a felony. I I knew that he was this hallucination thing that was going on with him could have really gotten to a point where he might hurt someone, uh, misunderstanding someone else's actions, and so. I got a little fearful of that, and I, I made a phone call to them, and I, and I asked them if they could please help me with my son. I don't want him to get a felony, you know. Mm-hmm. If, if there's any programs, if you could get him into a program, I didn't know what they could do, but I was hoping for uh-huh. something. I guess you could say I was reaching out. But basically, so he, um, they arrested him, um, not just right off the bat. Something, other things happened, and then at some point they arrested him. Uh, when he got into the jail system this time, um, he began. He was overdosing on that drug. He had overdosed on that. It's a drug called the Dipper. This drug is, drug is, I don't know how many people have heard of that drug called the Dipper, but it is a very dangerous drug, and it's claiming the minds of so many of our young people today. Hmm. Well, my son gets into the, uh, the an area jail, a neighborhood jail, and, um, you know, this was, uh, uh, he was arrested for drunkenness in public and for um, resisting arrest. Now, that would only have really cost him an overnight stay, pretty much, because it wasn't anything serious. But after about four weeks, I, I mean, I, you know, I, I was calling all the time trying to figure out what's going on with my child every day. I'm saying, I mean, he should have been out or what's yeah. going on. Nobody would tell me anything. Uh, after uh, he had been there about four weeks, um, his dad and I really got serious. I called real uh, late one night, and I said, I need somebody to, to tell me what's going on with my child. Uh-huh. And it turned out that he was going through a horrible detox. And the detox off that dipper drug is so horrific. I mean, I almost don't even want to tell anyone, but the reality is that it, most of the people who overdose on that drug um, either turn into a beast or a cannibal. And in his particular case, he turned into a beast. So he's sitting in his cell, he's eating his feces, and he's smearing his feces butt naked. And the jail is not telling his mother, who's calling almost every day, to find out what's going on with her son. And so finally they tell me, and I beg them, can you please get me some help for my child? And they told me that he's not a criminal, so there's nothing out there for him. You know, we, we, we can't get him no help if he's not a criminal. And they say he's not a hard enough criminal. And I said, whoa. And so a couple of days later or so, Justin evidently hit somebody, and I got a phone call. And they said, well, you know what? He hit somebody. Now, normally we would not uh, charge Justin with this because we know that that's not him, they said. But 
under the circumstances, because we want to get him some help, we're going to charge him with an assault and battery charge, and then we can send him off to Western State minimum security. So I, you know, my first thought was, okay, you know, I don't want him to be charged. You know, you mean you got to turn my son into a criminal in order for him to get some help? Hmm. Um, but at, at the end of the day, what was most important to me was that he get the help. And so I just agreed to whatever you have to do, just get him some help. So they sent him off to Western State Hospital um, where they kept him there for six weeks. I visited him a few times uh, because it's so far away, but I did visit him and I talked to him, tried to talk to him often. One day I called after he had been there almost six weeks. I I called and he got on the phone. He was very lethargic um, with the medication that they had in him. Um, but I could tell he was more in his right mind than ever before. And so he, and um, this is a little sensitive, but he shared with me on the phone that day that he had been raped multiple Mm. times. Mm. And I was livid. I I told him I was going to call the doctor and see what's going on. So I called the doctor. I talked to the doctor for, you know, a few minutes talking to him about it. He kind of almost dismissed it in the conversation. And then um, the next thing I know, within the next week or two, Justin was being shipped out to Central State Maximum Security Forensic Unit. Mm. And uh, so when he got there, you know, I asked to meet with the people. My sister and I drove out to Petersburg, Virginia, sat down with the staff. Uh, they introduced me to a young man they called the case manager and told me that's the man I would be talking to the whole time I'm there. Um, so the case manager is talking to me about um, Justin, and what he is um, telling me, um, you know, uh, you know that they're, they're a great place, you know, don't worry about Justin, he's going to ask it, because I said, this seems like this would be a place that Hannibal Lecter would come, <laughs> you know. And he said, yeah, well, this is where all the Hannibal Lecters of the East Coast come. And I said, huh. well, why is my son here? You know, he's, huh. just a drug, he's just a drug addict. Why is he in a place like this? And, um, you know, they did, they, of course, he didn't answer that. He just, and, and before the conversation was over that day, before we left, they told me that and that particular man said to me, why don't you just commit Justin? And I said, commit him? Yeah. I said, the judge, re- the judge ordered for you to restore him, so restore him. Well, uh, after, you know, we left and uh, three weeks passed, well, before the three weeks passed, I I spoke to the doctor, actually, and the doctor uh, there told me that the other doctor at the other place had Justin on too much medication. He can't even imagine why he had him on so much medication, but he was going to remove this. He was going to do that and do this. He said, and we're going to try and see what happens. And in about three weeks, Justin was, uh, I called up there, and, I mean, it was like I could pick him up that moment and bring him home. He was in his his right mind. Hmm. And, And so, I began talking to him twice a day, every day, and just, you know, getting a sense for what was going on with him. Um, You know, the staff was saying Justin was getting better. You know, he's pretty much in a position that he could be coming home soon, which which would have been coming back to the area jail to go before the judge, and the judge and them would have let him go because he didn't have any charges. So um, I, but, but my son's conversation was different. My son was um, whispering to me all the time, you know, first of all, that um, in this particular uh, place, that, that first of all, they did not um, have um, 
And the other men, what he was saying was that the other men who were there, nobody ever calls to talk to them. Because I was like, we're on the phone for like an hour sometimes, mm-hmm. an hour and a half. I said, doesn't anybody else need to use the phone? And he would say, no, you know, Mom, mm-hmm. um, nobody calls these men, you know. And mm-hmm. then he would whisper to me and say, Ma, you've got to get me out of here. This is crazy. And, you know, little things like that. And then one day, uh, after several weeks later, he whispered to me and told me that he was going to need a lawyer. And then another time he whispered to me, and he told me that he had gotten into an altercation with a young man who was there. And um, I called uh, back and talked to the case manager about it. He said, oh, Mr. Denise, don't worry about anything. Justin's fine. He's in great hands. The staff is great. Um, I, took, I took his word for it that Justin would be safe. Um, come to find out that, uh, you know, come to find out later, of course, I found out later some things, but... During that period of time, uh, Justin was not safe, and, and the fears that Justin was having were horrific fears uh, because he knew he was facing his own death. Hmm. Um, on February the 27th, um, I just happened to call that night. It was a Saturday evening. I called that night, and I was talking to him. And he, um, the first thing he said to me put, a, a, like put a, a, a dagger in my heart. I couldn't understand why did he ask me. You know, it was like he was trying to get his mind straight about the afterlife. What happens on the other side, Mom? You know, and he began to ask me all these questions. Um, I will say that he was so fearful that, um, you know, I felt that fear, but I didn't, it didn't strike me as though something bad was going to happen. It was just that he was just going through something. I was hoping that maybe, you know, I didn't know what to think. I just knew that he was fearful, but at the same time, maybe this fear might make it better for him to make right choices when he gets out. That's uh-huh. pretty much what was in my head. And um, the next thing I know, um, the next morning I receive a call um, telling me that my son was found dead in his bed. It turns out that this young man, um, George Phillips II, who murdered my son, had been there. Um, he got there sometime, I think it was in February, just early February, and he was there uh, for uh, attempted murder on two police officers. Hmm. And he had, he, he had initially he had robbed a bank, and that's why he was in jail in the first place. And um, this young man, uh, because in this forensic unit, I was told they don't have locks on the doors. Um, and so this, and, and then they put this, this particular man right next door to my son. Mm. And, um, you know, to make a long story short, he came into my son's room um, on February the 27th, and he strangled him to death. Um, But he had attempted to murder my, he had attempted, he had actually, he had stood up in front of the staff uh, on three uh, occasions and he told them that he was going to murder my child. Uh, Oh, wow. And they did nothing. They did nothing to protect him. And even on the night that this young man walked into my son's room, it almost, as a parent looking back, I say it was, in my heart, it was a planned event because the two people who were on staff that night they were supposed, one was supposed to be sitting in the hallway because of, they said, because he had attempted, said, said that he was going to murder him. Hmm. They put one in the hallway to watch the rooms and one who was to make rounds. And both of those individuals were in the lounge watching huh. television. Oh, wow. Um, the night that he got in there and he uh, murdered my son. Oh, so, wow. That is yeah. really, really yeah, so, sad. So, but as far as the media, well, wait, piece, I, I Denise, would, I have to. I do need to stop you because we need to take a break. Okay, but, sure, um, 
certainly one cannot get any more gritty or real than that. And how how tragic, because all along you were trying to do the right thing. Yes. Well, we need to take a break now. Um, that was Denise Wilkins. She is uh, the founder of the Justin L. Davis Foundation. <clears throat> we're going to be talking when we come back with Tim Traviola, Traviolia who um, is the author of Prison to Published, and we'll be hearing... Tim, I'm going to want you to comment, first of all, on what on Denise's story, and then tell your own. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We're talking today about life behind bars, not ready for prime time. We just heard the incredibly tragic story. Um, of Denise Wilkins and her son, Justin L. Davis, who was murdered in the forensic unit of a state mental hospital, um, where one, one thing led to the other, and she was just trying to get him help all along the way and, and thought he was getting it, and instead he got murdered. Um, Tim, Tim has been incarcerated for 22 years. He has just written a book that has come out called Prison to Published, and um, I'm sure you were had a lot of things that you could relate to in Denise's story. So first, before you tell us your story, tell us some of the things that you were thinking about as Denise was telling hers. Well, the reality of it is, uh, thanks for having me on the show, by the way. Uh, the reality of it is, I think Denise made a huge error, and everyone eventually learns this by trusting outside of herself. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of and I'm not saying these are bad people, doctors and police and judges and all that. I'm not saying they're bad, but the issue remains what it is. You know, the young fella got put in a situation, and uh, nobody hurt him. And uh, and someone just walked in and killed him. Mm-hmm. Sad, but it's not unusual. And it happened in state prison a lot. So I, I feel for you. I really do. I'm sorry that Thank happened you. to your son. 
if I could respond to that mm-hmm. as a parent who was a single parent who had to make decisions, when you're in the heat of, a, of an experience like that, that, you know, your child seems, it seems like you're, you're carrying this heavy wagon with the value of his life in it, and it's really weighty, and, it, and you're carrying up this, 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 this hill, and you're pulling it up this hill, and the hill is getting steeper and steeper, and he's getting heavier and heavier. Mm. You know, at some point, you know, it gets too heavy to bear. Mm-hmm. So you kind of let go, and mm-hmm. you're hoping, you know, that you can catch it before it gets to its end. And all along, that's how I felt. Like I was trying to, like he just said, trusting a system or trusting that there were caring people out there who sees what I'm seeing and that they would do something to yeah. assist me. And, and as he said, there was no assistance. And, and people people have different hearts today. That's yeah. all I Yeah. 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 Okay, so Tim, tell us about you, tell us your story. Well, I uh, started out as a young kid. My my parents uh, divorced, I think, when I was a year old or something like that, and they used me as a uh, pawn to uh, attack each other, get mad at each other, and things like that. One would steal me, and the other one would call the police to have me brought back. And uh-huh. you know, then later on, as I got older, 14 years old, my mom told me that uh, she couldn't afford to keep me anymore, so she sent me to my dad. Well, in my mind, that was like a death sentence. I never wanted to be around him or his family or anybody. But I went there, and uh, things started out just about the way I thought they would. The uh, stepmother was, uh, she had three sons, which were my half-brothers, and uh, she favored them, obviously, over anybody else, Uh which was me. (laughs) And um, so she would tell my dad certain things, uh, and it could be anything. And when he'd come home in the evening, first thing he did is he spent a half hour beating me upstairs. Mm. And um, so I went through that for about four years. And finally, I just, I'd had enough. So one day I uh, saw him sleeping in the living room. So I picked up a piece of firewood and I whacked him upside the head real good. Huh. He went down and then he got up and uh, told me he's going to kill me. So we proceeded to, to fight. I kept the firewood and I kept him away from me. And I just kept beating on him and beating on him until he uh, finally he went down and he wouldn't get up. And then I ran away and I never looked back. Hmm. So. And from what, there, did it, what did it turn out? How how injured was he? I don't know. I mean, he wasn't dead, but I don't uh-huh. know. Okay. Didn't care. Okay. No, I wanted to know if he was dead, basically. No. Wasn't okay. Dead. And, yeah. Um, so I took off bicycle hitchhike and uh, whatever get get going and I wound up uh, in Oklahoma uh, Oklahoma City I believe it was now this is from California right no it's actually from Texas from Texas okay yeah so we went I went there and uh, I was hitchhiking and this guy picked me up and he says uh, what are you doing, and you're traveling, and what's going on? So I told him what was going on. He says, hey, he says, been there, done that. He says, if you want, I can teach you how to make some money. We can hang out together and 
and uh, have a good time. Hmm. I said, okay, <laughs> no problem. So he taught me how to be a burglar, and uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I didn't know. So I went along with it, and they showed me how to get in the houses, what to look for, make sure nobody was home, this and that. And this went on for almost a year, and then finally, uh, I forget, I think we were in Georgia, and the police, yeah, we were in Georgia, and then the police arrested him and got me coming around the corner, and we went to jail, <clears throat> and then this officer told me, he says, I was hanging around with some seriously bad people, a person, this particular guy, and he's got... Um, a really bad rap sheet, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, he protected me and looked out for me for a long time. Mm. Well, he's going to jail for a long time, so we're going to let you go and we're sending you back home. Mm. So they had actually got a hold of my dad. Oh, and, wow. Uh, he sent some money to come back, and this is just a little side story here. So when they put me on the plane, this was back in the uh, 60s. So on those planes, back in those days, you could move around the cabin. Everything was cool, and we didn't have what we got going on now. Mm -hmm. And I was able to slip into the baggage compartment (laughs) and hide out. So when we landed in Houston, I never got off. And then when the plane took off again, then I slinked out of the hole and back into a seat, and we wound up in Los Angeles. Huh. And I got off the plane, and that was it. And that's as close as I ever got back to home. But it had, the damage had been done. The guy had taught me, and so I started creating a gang uh, down in Pershing Square. And uh, we took the top floor of Angel Flight Hotel uh, and paid the rent for the whole top floor, and a bunch of guys stayed there, and then we started a burglary ring. Yeah, spiraled out of control. People were getting arrested and going to jail. So we shut that down, and then I got busted. And uh, I did a nickel for burglary, five years, and came out, and uh, my head wasn't on right from that point on, and I I picked up a rape case, uh, female, and... uh, Went back for five more years. Wait, wait, you picked up a what? A rape. That you raped someone, okay. Yeah. yeah. And uh, went back for five years. Mm-hmm. And then got out, uh, got another burglary, went back for five more years, and then uh, got arrested for another rape and went back for eight. So... Mm. I stayed in. I stayed in a total of 22 years, 10 months, and four days, and mostly in uh, California Men's Facility in Vacaville, and I ran the book bindery there hmm. uh, for the Correctional Industries. And then uh, finally, they I transferred out and went to Soledad South, and I uh, was getting ready to muster out on parole. It took me a a year to get myself uh, oriented and to politicize, I guess is a good way, I don't know how to say it, the parole board and got them to give me a date. 
Hmm. And uh, so when I walked out of Soledad, I was standing right outside the gate and looked back and I swore that I would die before I went back in that Hmm. And uh, so I took off and hitchhiked to San Jose. That's where I stayed. I've been out here for uh, 29 years. And in those 29 years, I've been clean. I haven't done anything wrong. I haven't looked for trouble. And I wound up getting married a little Vietnamese lady. I've got a couple of homes, one of them in Hawaii. Hmm. Became a general contractor and um, pretty much just started reaching back. And I met one of the guys that I used to know inside uh, named Pastor Johnny, and he runs a he runs a uh, church, and he also runs a halfway house for people coming out. So he took me to a pack program where they, new parolees that have been out a week or less, have to show up on Tuesdays, and they get orientation from different resources that are available in Santa Clara County. And um, I was one of the resources, just talking to them and helping them and telling them, if they wanted help, you know, we could help them. I, I'm a uh, practitioner in EFT, which is Emotional Freedom Technique. You probably know about that, Doc. And um, also, I'm a clinical hypnotherapist. Hmm. Well, where did you learn how to do that? I went to school for it. You mean after you got out? Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, okay, so how did you... Um, after spending all those, well, first of all, you know, what's really sad is that when you left home after having such a horrible experience with your father and stepmother, for that matter, um, you, but you were looking for, you were so vulnerable to any man who would be a father figure to you, and you just happened to meet one who was a burglar and, and you know, got you into this kind of life. Unfortunately. And so how did you, what do you credit for making the switch, like, you know, you said you looked back and you thought you'd never, you'd have to die first before you ever went back. Actually, um, I've got a guard to thank for that. I was in, uh, I was, it, it, that's when my years started polit- politicizing the parole board. I had a guard come up on me and uh, just walk up and put his arm around me, which you just don't do to inmates. You wind up get yourself killed. Yeah. Anyway, he did, he said, look, him. He says, I know you have to see you around here. You know, you work for the goon squad. You're this, you're that. You know, you're straightforward. You keep your mouth shut. You don't belong here. You don't belong in prison. Huh. Do something. Get yourself out of here. He says, you can, you're smarter than this. These people in here are losers. You're not. Hmm. You know? So anyway, that, that, that was the turning point. So I thought, uh, it took me a few days to figure it out, but then I thought, I got to get out of here, and I got to, I got to start politicking the pro board. So I did, and uh, for a whole year, I I went to everybody I could think of to write chronos, put them in my jacket, and uh, so the pro board could read that you know I've actually been doing things. The I, right I, I I didn't understand that. What were you doing? I was uh, going around talking to everybody, anybody and everybody that would listen, and getting them to write a chrono. What's that? It's like um, it's like um, I, you might call it an email to the yeah. parole board, 
and uh, telling them, you know, hey, you know, you, uh, this is a good guy. Oh, uh-huh. This kind of thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, uh so that the guard gave you, you know, you realized he he saw something in you where there was hope, where there was, you know, maybe you were really as good as he said you were. But then once you got out, how did you, you know, were you getting help from somebody after no. you were? Well, what how did, did you turn yourself around after you actually walked out the door? When I walked out the door, I had one hundred fifty dollars after I paid for my uh, my clothes and. Um, I stepped out of the, and I had 150 cash. That was it between me and destitution. Hmm. So I um, I went to San Jose. I had a couple of guys had told me there was a there's fan rooms on top of buildings, and you can if you can get up to one on an outside fire escape, uh, you can go in these rooms and they're warm because it was December hmm. when I got out. And uh, even though San Jose is not that cold, it's still cold. Mm-hmm. And so I slept in this fan room, and um, I went to the potpourri, and I, I wound up meeting this lady who became fast friends with me, and we've been friends ever since. And she ran an ad for me as a uh, as a handyman, and make a long story short, I uh, was able to get a job through her paper, and she took the call. And I'd come in every day, and they'd tell me, "Okay, you got this or that or whatever." Hmm. So uh, it it was a challenge, but hey, if you want to be if you want to be right and do right, then uh, you live up to the challenge. Hmm. And that's hmm. what I did. Wow, yeah. that's that's, and obviously you worked up from there. Yeah, and I rode the bus to the job. Uh, you know, it it was it wasn't easy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, anybody that thinks it's easy to start over. You know, you need to go back in your mind when you did things for the first time and you were on your own scared to death, mm-hmm. and you'll know what I'm talking about. You know, it's not easy. Mm-hmm. But if you keep at it and you do things and you do them right, then uh, it eventually works out. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what happened. It just eventually, it just started working out and things were going good. Hmm. Well, that's a that's a very... A very a happy ending story, um, and and now we need to take a, another break. Um, we'll be back, and Denise, I'm going to ask you what what you were thinking while he was talking about that. When we come back, you're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm psychiatrist host Dr. Carol Lieberman, and stay tuned. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com
tune into Around the World in a Glass, presented by Sportsman's. We're a show all about wine, spirits, and other beverages. Your host, Kimber Stonehouse, is a professional expert and wine enthusiast. Each week, we'll focus on a different region of the world, discuss wines and other beverages, talk about some of the top restaurants in the region, and what to pair with which wine. Just listening could make you almost an expert. Around the World in a Glass is heard live every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live the leader in internet talk radio voiceamerica.com welcome back to dr carol's couch if you have a question or comment for dr carol dial toll free at 1-866-472-5788 now back to the show here's dr carol lieberman and welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We're talking today about life behind bars, not ready for prime time, uh, with my guest, Tim Traviola, Traviolia, and, uh, who's the author of Prison to Publish. We just heard his amazing story, both of the stories. My other guest, Denise Wilkins, Wilkins told the story of her son, Justin L. Davis, uh, being murdered in the forensic unit of a state mental hospital. Both of these stories were so incredibly riveting. It's and and it's kind of well, Denise. I want you um, to talk about what you were thinking and feeling while Tim was talking. <coughs> well, you know, Dr. Carroll. You know, I I have a saying that I say is that everyone is born a champion, but through the tools of life and the many struggles that we can face. It is easy for someone to get lost in the overwhelming task of survival. I believe that, you know, just listening to his story and even my son's story and many young people, because I've worked with young people for the last 22 years of my life, um, inner city youth kids. And one of the things that I noticed that whichever way you want to turn it, it's that young people are being disarmed before they even get to a place in their lives where they discover their champion, who they are, who, mm. you know, who they were designed to be, you know. And in, in um, Mr. Traviola's case, you know, he was just totally disarmed from the moment that his mom and dad started the con- conflict between themselves, putting him in the middle is what he remembers. And it took all of the distractions of life and all of the confusion that came into his world for him to be led back, and thank God he was able to be led back to discovering who he really was mm. designed to be. Um, in my son's case, he had his own um, disarming experiences, things that disarmed him. It didn't come out of my household because I, I worked overtime. I came from a dysfunctional home environment, and I wanted to provide my children with more than what I had. But it was a lot of those things that can happen to you in life, the head injury, the, the school misunderstanding you, all these different things disarm our young people before they even get a chance to really discover who they really are, you know, to be. So that was one of the things that mm-hmm. sort of touched me was mm-hmm. to hear how he had been disarmed mm-hmm. and I, to know how my son was disarmed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so and the systems are disarming our youth today. You know, when you talk about the media, the media is a system, and it is it is moving. It's a moving system that's moving in the lives of so many young people, and it is it's disarming them today. Yeah, so, like yeah. you you uh, tell us a little bit about how um, how how media, particularly music, played a part in putting your son off the right track. 
Okay. You know, again, I was a minister. I raised my son in an, in an environment where there were values. Um, I was very, very cautious as a parent as to what I exposed my children to. Um, he was not allowed just anything in our household. Um, and so I didn't even have TV. I kept movies going because I wanted to be able to determine what movies they would watch. So when this whole um, transition took place and he was uh, thrown into this environment uh, with these 12 young men, he began to become exposed to that hip-hop music, that disgusting, horrific <laughs> hip-hop music that I can't even believe that we live in a day and time that people are not being fed up with it and boycotting it or banning it. But this mm-hmm. music has power. I believe there's power in words. And I believe that the words that I use are, they think, they think they're listening to a beat, but it's not just a beat. It is the words that are driving them off course. And, and, and if I may just make a comment to, uh, you asked me how did it affect my son. I'll say that just listening to that music on a continual basis, he became what he was listening to. Mm-hmm. That's what happened. He became what he was listening to. Um, but I, I have another little situation that I like to tell people about because um, people don't realize today, uh, a lot of these parents um, are not really becoming aware of what their children are hearing. You you know, you just think they're listening to music. But the, the reality is I, I, I was working with a group of kids once, if I may take this moment to tell you this. I was working with a group of um, young people ages 9 to 15, and we were getting ready to do a play, and the play was called House Party. I allowed the children to bring in the music for the play. Um, and so they brought in all this music, and then this little 9-year-old girl was sitting next to me, and the song, they put all this music on. And the first song that they put on, well, I don't know whether it was the first, but at some point they put this song on, and and it kind of went to the window, to the wall, you know, and I was rocking with the beat, you know. The mm-hmm. beat was really cool, you know. And the kids were up there, and they were rocking to the beat, and the little girl sitting next to me, nine years old, she tapped me, and she said, Mr. Nice, we're getting ready to do this play for parents and for other people, you know. You're not going to want them to play this song for that. And I said, why? And she said, because it's about oral sex. Huh. Okay, so she's nine years old who already understands and knows what oral sex is. Mm -hmm. To me, that is bizarre. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I was nine years old, that was just not in I didn't even know. I had never even heard the Mm -hmm. term. So what I'm saying is that our young people today are being completely disarmed by the media. What they see, my son was disarmed by what he was being exposed to in that music. And he went from listening to gospel rap, which was all that was acceptable in my home at that time, to listening to that hip-hop rap, which is the gangster life, the thug life, the, you know, all of this stuff that is promoting the drugs, the alcohol, the violence. It's, 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 it's promoting that. And even though he, he had that foundation you know, that gave him that stability, I think, to some degree where he didn't fall all the way down. <laughs> he fell into it enough to where it began to guide his life. Yes, And, yes. Um, you know, that, that, that's pretty much what I would want to say. I mean, well, I just... My, yes, yeah. I mean, I have long to- I've been a long-time activist against violent media from songs and music and, you know, some of the angry lyrics. If people really... Yes. It's hard. You have to kind of concentrate to hear some of the lyrics, but if people paid more attention to that and just realized all the violence that they were advocating. Yeah, it goes a lot deeper yes. than that, though. Uh, yes, go ahead, Tim. Go ahead. Uh, when I say it goes a lot deeper, um, 
I'm in the process of developing a program for uh, training people to be parents mm. from, um, when you have a child from zero to seven years. And the reason, and Doc, you probably know these things, um, the reason is from zero to seven, we do not have an analytical uh, critic, a critical mind. All we mm. have is our subconscious and everything mm-hmm. that happens around you, words, uh, sounds, sight, everything goes directly to the subconscious mind. Mm-hmm. And the training that you give your child as it's born and as it develops and goes through these first seven years, that training, you have very little clue Mm. about the reality of what you're doing. Absolutely. We are teaching our children based on what we were taught and what they were taught, and the grandmother and the great-grandmother, and so on down the line. We change a little bit, but we basically go true to form that, hey, mom said it was good enough, so it's good enough for me, and it's going to be good enough for you, and it was good enough for grandma. And the reality of it is a lot of stuff that we put in children's minds are what causes the reality that we live in called the world today. Yes. Because things aren't as they should be. Well, yes, and one of the things, one of the made most... um, one of the things that's really becoming uh, is an epidemic um, and is really destroying people is divorce. You know, mm. people who get divorced don't want to acknowledge um, mm. how the scars that it leaves on kids. Exactly. But in fact, uh, that really, I mean, even just recently we heard, you know, you've heard about the death of Corey Monteith, right? The guy from Glee, mm-hmm. the actor, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. who took drugs and alcohol and um, fell off the wagon. And um, he, in his own words, described that his first problem started when his parents got divorced when he was a young boy, mm-hmm. and uh, then when he was around seven, and then when by the time he was 13, he started using drugs and all that. And so, like, even, so even, and even someone who, who ultimately became incredibly successful, had this cute girlfriend, had this starring mm-hmm. role in a, in a hit TV show, was talented, mm-hmm. had money, all the things that, you know, you might hope to have, and mm-hmm. yet the demons of his past which started with his parents' divorce, um, weren't the, the success wasn't enough to uh, mm. to to comfort him from mm-hmm. the pain that he had had that started as a young child. So yes, mm-hmm. parents, that, that's important. What both of you are doing, actually, because parents do um, you don't realize how much what they're doing uh, is influencing the future of their child. Um, Tim, also, could you just talk a little bit about you know this concept of uh, prime time TV or, or any kind of cable TV, um, how TV shows and media in general don't really show some of the truths uh, that mm. go be- on behind bars? Well, you know, the, you, you, you people, and I say you people, media, uh, psychologists, all that, you know, we, we put out so much, and there's only so much that you can really reveal. There are a lot of it uh it's it's a quigmire it, you know it's like uh, it's scary uh, mm-hmm. what's going on in in the world uh, how we receive information you know reporters and people that 
report the, report the news, that research the news, you know, they all mean well. They're, all of them mean well. They, uh, you know, and the hype is, hey, uh, if it's not blood and guts, sex or something, it's not going to sell papers. Mm-hmm. Well, in a lot of cases, that may be true. But, you know, people like to hear good stuff. Right. They like to hear good stories. They like to hear success. I mean, I tear up just sitting in front of the TV watching Undercover Boss whenever he uh, goes and helps somebody. Mm. One of them helps somebody and and uh, gives, gives of themselves to someone else because you've, you've come from all the way down and you've brought yourself up and you reach back and you bring somebody else forward. Yes. And so, you're always, you want to help. You well, when you watch shows that are about the prison and you know what it's really like, what bothers you the most? Uh, most of it is there's there's no such thing as a TV reality when it comes to prison, you know, because you don't see it. You, you know, you see a lot of people milling around, standing around, moving here, moving there, uh, picking up instruments that could hit somebody. You don't see that inside. You know, you don't see those kind of things. You pick up something or you even swing at somebody. Uh, we've got whistles going off, guns being shot. Uh, many things transpire. Uh, you know, you. <laughs> it's different. You know, it's really different. And you, you need to, you're in constant fear for your life when you're, when you're behind bars. I don't care if you're a man, a woman, whatever. You're in constant fear. And uh, a lot of people decide to tip up uh, getting gangs uh, as, a, as a means of safety and protection. And then as these gangs get bigger, then they start overpowering other people and trying to be rulers of the roost. Mm-hmm. So uh, as far as the media, you know, I, I really don't put a lot of credence in the media uh, for helping. Uh, you know, their job is to report the news as they see fit. So basically, it sanitizes shows about Pretty about much. prison sanitizes them. Pretty much, yeah. Sanitizes they don't want. Uh, you know, uh, if you see things that are going on in there, and these people are going to wind up on the streets again, you know, it, it'll scare you. Mm-hmm. It'll scare you. You know, you got a guy in there that uh, they found somebody dead in the mop room, and they never found the guy. They killed him mm-hmm. or the group. And then, you know, they got a bunch of releases coming up uh, in the next six months mm-hmm. or a year. Uh, maybe he's one of them. And mm-hmm. how, do, how does that make you feel? Mm-hmm. How secure do you feel whenever you got people coming out of prison, yeah. uh, you know, that are getting released early or... Uh, they beat a case or something. Yes. But you know damn good and well they're they're uh, they're guilty. Yes, absolutely. You know, Still dangerous. Makes you wonder. Well, yes. Well, we need to we need to to uh, we come to the end of our show. Unfortunately, both of you. Thank you both very much. Let me thank tell you. my listeners uh, that's Tim Traviolia. His book is called Prison to Published. You can get it on Amazon. Um, and Denise Wilkins, her foundation is called the um, Justin L. Davis Foundation dot org. Is that right? Yes. It's, okay. Uh, yeah. www.justinldavisfoundation.org. dot org. Okay. And I would I would 
please uh, refer you all to check these out. I mean, obviously, Tim's uh, stories, he's touched the highlights, but I'm sure his book even includes more. Again, that's Prison to Published. And um, thank you all for listening, and thank you, Tim and Denise, for being on the show and, and really sharing uh, sharing the reality My of pleasure. some of the things that we need to be, be aware of. Um, well, thank you for having us, Carol. You're welcome, and thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit Voice America Variety.